0: second thing is to interrupt your pattern. And what that means is that any pain, emotional uncertainty, any pain, anything that is not making you feel good is a signal for you to snap the hell out of it. Stand up, shake yourself out. Because as soon as you do, you create a scotoma. You create a blank spot. You know, we've all had the experience where you're, you're going, okay, I got to go in the kitchen and get an ink pen. You stand up and go in the kitchen and there you're standing. You don't know what the hell you came in there for. You interrupted your pattern. But the great part about it is in that moment, you've created a scotoma, a blank spot, and it's a vacuum, and it's begging for something to put in. And in that moment, just smile. When you smile, it releases the dopamines and endorphins, and that teaches your nervous system to do it again. So your nervous system goes anytime pain comes around. This is a practice, if you will. Then you snap yourself out of it.
1: Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel.
2: And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago.
1: One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably gonna contribute more at work.
2: Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential.
1: Welcome to the best self-management podcast. I'm David Hassel. I'm Shane Metcalf. And today I am very, very excited to have Joseph McClendon III, who is one of the most sought after ultimate performance specialists in the industry. His unique brand of tell, show, do, teaching and coaching creates rapid personal change that effectively moves people to take more consistent action and go further faster with their personal and business achievements. Joseph is a best-selling author and has performed hundreds of workshops, coaching sessions and seminars and one-on-one therapeutic interventions and has presented to well over four and a half million people around the world.
0: Welcome, Joseph. Thank you for having me.
2: Joseph, I gotta tell you, when we uh, secured the interview with you, David called me and he was like, we're interviewing Joseph McLennan. And he was so excited. I know he's trying to play it cool right now, but yeah, he, uh, he is a he is a big fan and he was very excited when, when we set this up.
0: Well, so it's I, really I'm, good I'm, to have you on. I'm flattered. And David, I, I feel that way about me every single morning. <laughs> <laughs> I get up every okay. single morning and go, hey, I get to be Joseph the III. <laughs> it,
2: it is a good feeling. <laughs> I remember there was, it was a, probably about eight years ago. I was walking through the mission in San Francisco, and I had the realization that I would not trade places with anybody.
0: Yeah, until you get to that place in your life, you're always going to live in doubt and uncertainty. And I encourage people to get there as quickly as possible to recognize that, listen, you got dealt this hand and it is the greatest hand you're ever going to get. So love it. (laughs) What was that moment for you when you kind of had that like, oh, my God? Well, um, ironically, it followed the worst moment. Well, one of the worst moments in my life. I was sharing with you guys before. I was once homeless. In my life, and I was homeless. I became homeless not because I had a bad upbringing or anything like that, or because something happened and, and and I lost a lot of stuff. I became homeless because when I was 17 and a half years old, three grown men tried to take my life because of the color of my skin. Oh my God. And it devastated me in the moment. And the physical scars healed in time, but the emotional scars, it stole my dignity my self-worth, my self-esteem and everything. And I wound up just hating myself and becoming almost suicidal. And But to answer your question, that moment came when somebody that I didn't know gave me the book, and the book was called Think and Grow Rich. Hmm. And I was desperate. Yeah, Napoleon Hill. I was desperate. So I always tell people, I not only read the book, but I did the exercises in the book. And there was a moment in there, that I realized that it wasn't about what happened, but it's about what I do to change my own self that was going to make it. And it was in that moment that I realized, well, wait a minute—you know, all the stuff that I know, all the stuff that I'm able to do, all the stuff that all my dreams, my goals, and my desires—they're still there. I just got to find them, and that was the first awakening for me. And I started to realize that, you know, like I said, this is all I got. <laughs> You know, So I, get, I have the opportunity every day to do something about it and make it the greatest. In our conversation earlier, we were talking about how the book you wrote
2: and about that you wrote that book for the black community because you had black friends coming up to you and asking you, hey, you're seeing success. You're seeing some of the things that that we want. Like, how, what are you doing? And then you're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm reading these books. And, and they're like, yeah, well, those are a bunch of white authors and I don't really see myself in them. And that you realize an opportunity to build a bridge for the black community with self-development, with personal
0: growth. And I'd love to hear just a little bit of that story. Yeah, it wasn't just in them. It was in myself as well, to be honest with you. Mm. Because, you know, I always say I've had a blessed upbringing. Two great parents. My father was on military just as strict as he could possibly be, you know, and I hated it when I was growing up, but now I look back on it and I think, thank God, you know, he was very disciplined like that. And my mom was an artist. She was a musician. As and you know, uh, you'll, you'll thank me later. And then we, we do. It's like, oh, you were right. Man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but having said all of that, growing up and being black in the United States carries with it an emotional wound, an emotional scar that we... And when I say we, I mean, everybody of color and everybody, everybody, period, doesn't matter what color, is unaware that's there. And I will I will say this, that, and I wrote about it in my first book, and just the name of the book is called Unlimited Power, A Black Choice. And I'll, I'll get back to that here in a second. But I didn't realize it was there as well. And that was that there is a level of an inferiority complex, imposter syndrome, and even self-noathing to a certain extent, meaning that you know you're different. You know that you're not preferred. You know that there is something that you just have that feeling. So much so that uh, I think it was Harvard did a study not too long ago, and it's been you know New England uh, Medical or Journal of, of Medicine uh, published this as well that the cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone that our bodies release, is twice that in a black person, specifically black men above the age of 15, twice that of anybody else. And that comes from that knowing. And, and I'll prove it here. I mean, I'm not prove it, but I encourage everybody to just go online and look up uh, or go on YouTube and look up um it's called the black baby doll experiment. It'll be the saddest thing you see all day, but you'll get what I'm saying, and that is this. When I say there's a wound, the wound is embedded in us that we don't even know, and at a very very young age. And I could go on and on about it, but the the experiment was they took a black baby doll and a white baby doll And they sat them on a table, and then they took children. They did it first with black children, but they did it with white children, Asian children, all children, between the ages of three and seven years old. And you'll see this. And the narrator asks the child, point to the baby that's wrong, bad, and ugly. And all of those children point to the black baby doll. And then they say, point to the baby that's good, right, and pretty. And all of those children at three to seven years old. And so one has to ask themselves, where do they get it? Well, it's handed down through the ages, and, I, and you know. And again, as a psychologist, I know where that comes from, and I know how deep that sits inside of you. So I had it in myself as well. So when those men did that to me, it just fortified what was already there and made it, my psychology go, "Yeah, it's true." So when I got quote unquote enlightened to the fact that it, you know the color of my skin or anybody's skin should not make a difference. I realized that there was something I could do about it. So I obviously, because I I needed money, you know, I chose real estate in that moment. And I remember, and this is back in the olden days when you could collect Coke bottles, and I saved up enough Coke bottles and cans to buy a course in real estate. Uh, It was one of the first courses uh, back in the 80s of how to flip houses. I bought 26 houses, and that's when I first started to show some success. And my friends would come to me, as you said, uh, Shane, they would go, why are you so successful? And I would say, because I read these books and I do these things. And they would say, not all of them, but would say, well, we can't relate to that. So that's why I wrote that book, was to bring the tools, the strategies, the technologies, and the processes to people so that they can make those changes themselves, no matter what color you are.
2: What had you be open to learning from you know, a white guy? And, and, you know, because it's, it's such an interesting conversation right now of, of the need for representation, the need for black leaders in our companies, the need for people we can look up to that we can identify with. And so I'm just curious, what was it for you that had you be open to learning from somebody that maybe, you know, you didn't identify with
0: racially? Well what what happened was and again it's it's process, I always say process is progress, was it wasn't the need or the understanding to learn from somebody black. It was just the understanding to learn from somebody, period. It didn't matter, to drop the guards, which was part of the challenge. If you feel like which I did. That and a lot of people do. That others might not have my best interest at heart, or they don't understand me. Then you know it puts a shroud, it puts a dampener on your ability to learn. So mm-hmm. if you wipe all of that stuff away, then you just go. I'm there to learn. It doesn't. You don't even think about it. It doesn't matter the color of somebody's skin. It doesn't matter. Information is information. You know. Right now, you know. There's. I'm sure there's people that are going to be listening to us that can't see us. And if they you know, sign in at a point where they're just hearing information, does it matter what color I am? It shouldn't. Unfortunately, it does. So, so to answer your question, it was just the striking of the realization that just go learn. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It's what you do with it. That's great. How has
2: that book been received? I'm really curious of, of, is it right, The Unlimited Power of Black Choice?
0: Yeah, it's called Unlimited Power of Black Choice. And it was a New York Times bestseller back in 96. And it was received and still is received very, very well. And believe it or not, you know, I, I co-wrote it. At the time, I didn't have a name. I didn't have anything. And I co-wrote it with my business partner, Tony Robbins. And there are people that, despite what it was, there are people that had said, well, you know, why did you write it with him? And I remember back when I was even doing the book tour with it, that was a frequent question. Why did you write it with him? He's a white guy. He doesn't understand. And the reality is, again, it doesn't matter where the information comes from. It doesn't matter. Just get the information. So it was well-received, still is. And unless, to me, at which I, I'm actually rewriting the book, unless it comes with a precursor that says, listen, pay no attention to... The color of even my skin. Don't say I'm buying this because Joseph's black. I'm buying this. I'm I'm getting this because I want the information so I can change my life, so I can change my family's life, so I can change my community's life.
2: Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Like, even as a white guy, you know, like over the last six months, I've made deliberate choices to consume more black media. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, hey, oh wow, I go and look at my Netflix queue, and I'm realizing that I'm kind of passing over. Black culture media, and so just of like, hey, let's change that, and then it's just all of a sudden it's a it's a much broader input, and it's just like, man, this is really good quality content. This is just great entertainment that isn't actually necessarily uh, only about the black experience, but it just is actually broadening my perspective and also developing a deeper empathy for the perspective of being black
0: in this country. Yeah, and I think that that viewpoint is broadening with a lot of people around Shane, because a lot of people are starting to recognize that, and this is going to sound terrible, that, hey, they're just people too. <laughs> you know, And their experience yeah, yeah. Is, is intermingled with us. Now, I saw yeah. something a couple of days ago, and I rarely interact when I see hostile people. I rarely will interact but this one I had to and it was a guy it was a white guy who was saying wait a minute you know what if I a white guy if I was going to start a magazine called white enterprise or if I was going to have a TV show called the black entertain or the white entertainment network I'd be labeled a racist and I'm this and everything and, um, and he said, so it's just not fair. You know, he says all lives matter. And they all do matter, which, you know, there's nobody saying that there isn't. But I had to write him back. And I said, you know, quite honestly, I understand exactly how you feel. And I look forward to the day when there doesn't have to be that delineation, where mm-hmm. it doesn't have to say black this or black that. It doesn't have to say anything. It's just how we are. Now, that's a dream, that Martin Luther King had, you know, some time ago that we all have that you know, I don't have to pound on my chest and say, "Hey, I'm black, take a look at me, you know, and therefore I am I'm worthy." But the reason why that stuff is happening and it, and it's not fair. It's not it's not I'm not saying that it should be that way. I'm just saying I'm looking forward to the day that it doesn't have to be that way where you know, everybody does look at everybody and just goes you know, this is another person. Blah blah blah. And for some people, they can't see that. And I always say to people, if you can't see what I see, borrow my glasses. Because yeah. we are headed for a better, better future. All of us.
1: You mentioned something about progress, um, and I'm curious. Like, since you've written that book in '96, I mean, a lot has transpired. The, you know, our culture and, and world has changed in a lot of ways, and especially most recently. Uh, I'm curious, how do you think see things progressing? How do you think see things that you know what's changed, what hasn't
0: changed? what you know, what do you think the trajectory we're on is? Yeah, I'll answer it this way. I, I said this uh, earlier that things are gonna change when we change. and I say we everybody, you know, I literally I have something that i'm I've created that I'm working on to bring into the consciousness. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm starting with my own community and to help people get the tools. I'll say this. And, you know, Dave, you know, and I I think so you as well, Shane, I'm in the belly of the beast and have been for 30 years. And what I mean by that is I'm up until COVID monthly, I was in front of from 15 to 20,000 people as a hired gun. Now, my own seminars and workshops, it's a little bit differently. It's definitely more racially diverse and so on. So over the course of a few decades, live, not to mention you know television and things like that, just live, in person, in front of people, four and a half million people, but only at the most 5%, but more more likely 3%. And if you've been to the seminar, you know what I'm talking about, yep. are black people. And I say I'm a hired gun, meaning I show up. And I run my mouth to an audience that was brought to that, that stadium or whatever it is by a promoter who markets to a mainly white audience. And there's lots of different reasons why this information has not been accessible to the black community. We'll leave those behind for a second. But the risk of sounding arrogant, my expertise, I have two strong skill sets. One of them is as you know, my I have a, a doctorate in neuropsychology. And Shane, we talked about this before. I'm unorthodox in the way that I go about doing things. If you, I'm a neuropsychologist, and there's a difference between that and a traditional psychologist. If you come into my office and you got a fear of dogs, there's going to be a dog in there. And at the end of that hour, you're going to hold the dog. You're going to love the dog. You're going to be great with that dog. You're gonna, over your challenge, and then I'm going to give you something to do, so that when you leave there, it not only fortifies, but it starts to affect the whole rest of your life. The other skill, so so my skill set is being able to do that for people. My other skill set is to teach people to do it for themselves. Now, what does that have to do with our own progress with regard to teaching and learning? Is this is that we all, every single one of us, have something to learn, to, to grow ourselves. We all want more health, wealth, and happiness, and all those things. Yep. However, if only, in my opinion, three to five percent of that four and a half million people, and and obviously much, much more, are getting this information, it means that my own community, the black community, is missing out. And at the risk of sounding arrogant, at this level, there's nobody better than me to be able to teach that. And I know that sounds arrogant, but I'm just saying as I look at what's out there and I look at what needs to be taught, it's the methodology to rid yourself of that emotional scar, to change the procrastination, the hesitation, the fear of failure, the fear of success, all those things that are the thieves of our dream. It's process. If you come into my office and there's a dog, there's a process that I'm gonna take you through. And I teach that process to other people so they can do it for themselves. Lastly, I'll say this, you know, to whoever's listening, if you had a tool that you could vastly reduce or eliminate a bad memory, a bad feeling, a unresourceful behavior, uh, even ones that you don't even know that are there. What would you do with it, and how would your life be better? Everybody would go, "Well, bring it on!" <laughs> you know, yeah. I got stuff I can work on right now. Yeah, can we can
2: we do that right now?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I'll take I, some I, of that. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, <laughs> everybody. But that, but that, as you know. David, you were saying you, you went to the seminar and your yep. life changed, you know. And so all I want to do is make sure that that we get that. And if you need to hear it from a black man, here I am. If you need to not just hear it, because because I, I always pride myself on, as you said earlier, my process is tell, show, try, do. And what that means is I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to show you either by example that I can demonstrate, whether I'm on stage or whatever, and or a story or an example that I'm going to show you. We're going to try it together. You're going to get a result, and then you're going to do something outside of there so that it perpetuates and and becomes geometric in your life.
2: I want to talk directly to you listening in for just a moment. If you're enjoying these interviews, the concepts we discuss, and you're committed to equipping your managers to develop highly engaged and high-performing teams, there's some additional resources that we know can help. Access the forever free Best Self-Management Certification at 155.com forward slash academy for core management skills that unfortunately are not taught in business school. Visit 155.com forward slash services to sign up for our Manager Accelerator program to reorient your managers around the essential skills needed to conduct effective one-on-ones, offer meaningful feedback, and coach their teams to greatness. If you want exceptional software that integrates beautifully with our education and training, visit 15.5.com today.
1: This is a great segue because, you know, I mean, you know, Shane and I had this crazy idea about creating this idea of best self-management, which is the title ah, of this podcast. It. And this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, rather than trying to manage for performance as, as company leaders, trying to get as much as we can from our people. What if we actually created an environment that supports people in learning, growing, developing, being and becoming their best selves? Uh, you know, some people go to a, a seminar to, to get transformation. We're saying, come work for us. And then can we create companies that do that so the companies thrive by unlocking the potential of their people? Uh, and I'm so curious to learn from you what are some of the key things and distinctions that we can think about as company leaders and as the developers of this methodology that we can help other company leaders? learn how to continue to make those small changes or create the environment that invites, you know, that one shift that creates a geometric change that all of a sudden everything's different for that person in terms of their health, wealth, happiness, and contribution and sense of purpose and
2: and whatnot in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, mean like, part of the dream is, like, that... People go and get a job, at not not just at fifteen five, but anywhere they go work at McDonald's, they go work at any any business, and they actually leave a a happier, healthier, wealthier version of themselves. You know, like that would be that's the vision we're
0: holding for the world. First off, my hat is off to you. I express my appreciation for what you're doing and and holding that cause or that purpose for yourselves and for your company. You know, thank you for that because the world needs more of that. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that you're aware of that there's that need and that you're doing about something about it will start to make a difference. To answer your question, and this is just my opinion, I, I taught at the University of Southern California for seven years, and it was a, it was a happenstance that put me in there. And quite honestly, I took the job because I thought it would look good on my resume. <laughs> uh, but once I got in there- I don't think there, any, any <laughs> of us
2: or any of our listeners have ever done
0: anything that was self-serving. You know? <laughs> We've always been selfless. We were yeah. born enlightened. But when I went in, it was a rude and necessary awakening for myself. Wow. Uh, and it fed into something that I, I should have said earlier. The reason why my purpose and the reason why I do what I do is because- When I told you that the person entered my life and gave me the book, "Think and Go Rich, introduced me to that whole thing. When I went back to him to thank him for doing what he did for me, and I said, you know, how do I repay you? What he said to me is, he goes, Joseph, you do the same thing that I've done for you for as many people as you possibly can for the rest of your life. Wow. And to be honest, you know, I was young then. I didn't take it as serious then. But as I've grown and I look at my background and everything, that is my purpose for doing what I do now. So I my hat is off to you because you're doing that as well. You're doing that. You're touching people's lives in a way they need to. And so, and so the reason I brought up UCLA was I taught in the uh, engineering and management department of the of the college. And I was working with engineers and this is no, I'm not throwing any shade on engineers, but I will say they're the hardest audience to to work with, especially uh, for somebody that is uh, as cosmic thinking as I am. Uh, because everything that I, I taught them, I had to have concrete, and this is before YouTube, by the way, I had to have concrete evidence provable stuff. Um, and so one of the things that I realized with regard to the workplace, because what this was, what, it was it was only about 20% undergrads, the rest of it was, was uh, employers would send their employees, and they were ranging between 35 and 55 years old, who were engineers, who had been through, whether it was because of tenure or whatever, they've been moved into management positions. And there's a challenge there because engineers are not necessarily people, people. Uh, so now they've got to manage people and they're wondering why there's chaos in there. And so to answer your question, sorry for the long answer, but to answer your question, there are three things that have to happen within the environment to make that employee, A, recognize that I want to change, B, trust that these people are going to help me change and then see the process that's necessary to make that change. So the first thing is for people to recognize that they want to change is to give them the opportunity to feel good about themselves going forward. And you can do that just through a series of questions. The first question is, what do you want? What do you want? Why did you come here? And what do you want? Now, the obvious answer is somebody's going to go, well, I came here because I want, you know, I got to feed my family or I want a job. If you dig deeper and you go, well, what else do you want? Why do you want that? What's this going to give you? And you start to ask those questions. Three things happen psychological to a person. The first thing is, is they recognize that they have, a, they start to let down their guard and they start to recognize that this person cares about me. Second thing is, is they start to let down their guard and they start to recognize that they want something else. Third thing, which is critical. If you don't ask, then on some level, unconsciously, they know you don't know. And if they know you don't know, then they can feel like and probably will feel like you're trying to get them to do something for you and not them. Wow. And so those barriers drop as soon as you do that. Okay. Second thing is with regard to them recognizing that they can get this here is that you, you know through whether it's testimony or whatever, you can explain to them, and listen, here's what we want for you. And oftentimes you can just parrot back what they said. You know, we want to provide an an environment for you that you can come, you can feel safe, you can, you know, know that you're going to get a paycheck at the end of this and know that we're going to support you in whatever you're going to do. And that in this, we're going to give you the opportunity to learn more and grow more so that whenever you leave this environment here, you're a better person. Now, that's the second thing. And then the third thing is process. And that's a longer answer than we have right now. But the processes that you give them daily, the processes that you give them with regard to your involvement with them, whether it's what I call post audit communication or rewarding them and praising them and and letting them know evaluations and, and feedback models and things like that to help them feel good. The whole point is a happy employee a happy employee or employer is going to be more apt to do better because they feel better the the endorphins and dopamines that are being released in those moments while they're at work then they're going to have a positive association to the job that they're doing and they're going to do better
2: i you know it's so cool because it i think it expands this idea of okay, as a company, I can only be concerned about what my employees want professionally. You know, that's the only right, domain right. Mm-hmm. that I should ever even uh, go into. And I think what this, is, this is just blowing up that model because it's actually saying, hey, what do you want for your life?
0: Yeah, with the caveat, knowing that they're, you know, listen, I, I think that when I was growing up in my teens and my 20s, they would say, I remember them saying that gone are the days of having a job and retiring at that job. And back then they said, and, and this was in the 80s, you know, in, in early 90s, they said that the average person is going to have five careers in their life. Well, now, that's like 15 different careers, 15 at, yeah, different you know, things they're going to do. And yeah. so things are different. So having said that, what is inevitable is that they're going to leave at some point. And so letting them know, and by the way, it's a push-pull kind of thing. So when you, when you as an employer let your, your employees know that, listen, I know that this is not forever, and when and if you do leave i want you to go with my blessings i want you to go and and thrive in your life and when people hear that they know that, again that whole feeling about you you know i jokingly say to people if i say to you listen if you work hard and you give up you, you sacrifice your time your effort and you show up here every day you know 10 minutes earlier than the time you, and you work later at the end of a year i promise you my son and I are gonna go to Hawaii and have a vacation. <laughs> you know, they go, yeah. well, screw you. You know, what about me? And that's kind of like what you're saying when you say just come to work and work hard. I'm gonna I am gonna I'm gonna go tell the call company that tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Hey However, guys, I learned
2: this amazing thing from Joseph McClendon. If you work
0: hard, <laughs> I get to go to Hawaii. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And just to, you know, I, I'm a linguist. Uh, you know, part of one of my certifications, if you will, is neuro-linguistic programming. So every word that we, we use has a biochemical change in our nervous system. It's a trigger to make our bodies release different chemicals. You know, my last book is called Awesome Sauce. Awesome Sauce is, is the, uh, I mean, the- I mean,
2: I just felt a bio-neurochemical uh, change in my brain just even thinking Awesome Sauce. <laughs> yeah,
0: because, and by the way, every word, again, brings with it, the, it's a trigger. And and there's certain words that are universal, but along with that is tonality and all those things. But the string of words that you use changes people's lives, Mm. and it changes their. You can you can help them change their lives so that they find out their own trigger words, and they embed those words in their nervous system that make them continue to say those things which continues to release that that chemical awesome sauciness and causes them to feel a certain way which causes them to perform a certain way which causes them to receive and produce a different lifestyle but
1: i love starting and centering with understanding what they really want Right. Yeah. The, and and concept, you know, Shane has huh? a coaching background and I know that, uh, NLP is really the the foundation of my training
2: as a coach. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was yeah. life changing. Being able to actually start to go in and, and start to change my own limiting beliefs, my own core wounds yes. around. Yes. I'm not good enough. I'm inadequate. Who am I to ever start a company or be a leader? I'm totally just, you know, it's just going to be fake. Those were the stories. Yeah, that were going Yeah. On.
0: yeah. Imposter and, syndrome.
2: And that's, That's no longer the case for the most part.
1: I was going to share that one thing real quick uh, about that. And, you know, there have been times when, you know, Shane, you've told me stories about asking someone who's coming for a job interview, you know, digging in on what they really want. And not only do they not take the job, but they're like, I don't think I even want to be in this career. I want to go exactly. To of <laughs> yeah, and that's the best thing that can possibly happen.
0: Yeah, and and they did you a favor as well because you don't that's want right. somebody like that, you know, with you.
2: Interviews are typically two people lying to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the the goal is like, can we get to the truth? Can we yeah, actually uh-huh. I, I, genuinely? be concerned with what people really want, and help them understand what they want so that we can live a more aligned life and actually stop the inner compromise
0: that leads us into situations where we're contorted, which isn't actually our purpose. Well, I love that. I love that. And, and what you said is true uh, about lying to each other because I don't think it's intentional. I think right. if people put on their best face, the employer and the employee – Uh, the business person and the employee, again. But what happens is oftentimes, I would say most of the time, an employer goes in or if they got a headhunter or whatever, they're going in and they're looking for the best person qualified to do the work. That's it. The best person with the best background, the best experience and having done this job description that we have. Rarely do we look at the best person that is qualified to A, do that, but B, work in this environment and C, be happy in this environment so that they produce at their best. And so, when we add those other two elements, that's when life changes for them and for us as yeah, well. Yeah.
2: Well, and it's really interesting. I think in the business world, there's so much cynicism that we need to overcome with people who, who have been through, who've had, you know, 12 of their 13 careers <laughs> yeah. and have been treated like shit have yeah. not been mm-hmm. actually respected, have not been seen as the individuals that are worthy of respect and wholeness that we really are. And so, you know, even there's there's people in our company that have a hard time trusting that we yeah. as leaders, yeah. as the board, as the founders, genuinely have their best interest at heart. It's a really interesting thing to overcome because in a way it's this like collective corporate trauma that we're going against
0: and so Mm -hmm. i think yeah
2: yeah, i'd love to hear your thoughts on that
0: yeah not only that there's something that i call entrepreneur envy and resentment Mm. and that is that the employee and and i i I don't even like to use that word however you know it it suits us now employee comes in and and i'm going to say this from experience i resented my bosses Hmm. for reasons i didn't even know were there and Super I would, interesting. Yeah, I would label them selfish. I would label them uncaring. Now, this is all unconscious. You know, as I look back, I'm obviously intellectualizing it now. But I would resent them for doing better than I am. And by the way, this is across the board. People feel this way anyway. People look at people that are that are rich or have a lot of money and they go, well, that son of a bitch, he's a rich person, you know, and they don't have the struggles when they don't know what the, what I've been through or you've been through or anything like that. And that resentment, unless it is dealt with, is always going to be distrust. If a person doesn't feel like they can be the same as or even better their employer, then guess what? you're going to deal with some level of that that resentment. If a person doesn't at all times feel like, anytime I want to, I could step outside of this and become an entrepreneur myself, then they're going to have that resentment of that person. And so procedurally, you said the word that we got to build the trust in them That they recognize that we have their best interest at hand. And again, going back to the fact and letting them know that, listen, I love you. I want you to be here as long as you want to. And as long as you're here, we're going to support you. We're going to make sure that you get everything that you need and that we all grow together. You know, I always tell companies, okay, well, figure out a way that you give some incentive to that person, whether it is, you know, uh, stock options or whether it is, you know, dividends at the end of the year or something like that, that they have that carrot on the stick or something to look forward to. Because without it, it's just going to be another job. You know, it's just going to be another thing where, like I said, they're, they're, that resentment is going to be high and they're looking at you. And they also can feel like, well, you know, he or she, you know, my employer is not going to you know, notice that I'm slacking off a little bit or I'm only going to give enough to get this job done. You want that person to want to perform at their best and bring the best so that the whole grows.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I th- I think I probably spent a whole decade of my life subconsciously, unconsciously comparing myself against other people and feeling, you know, jealousy or or not yeah, feeling yeah. good enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was a there was a big shift I made around that where that just dropped away. But I imagine it's a similar mechanism that's running for people.
0: It's with everybody. It yeah. is human nature. It is, and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, it comes with the package. Every yeah. single one of us is born with that fear of rejection. And it is designed for us to be to stay alive. Yeah. There's an experiment. It's a terrible experiment done in the 40s called uh, "Failure to Thrive." And what it was, I don't know if you guys are familiar with yeah. Skinner boxes, where they yeah. took infants, they took orphans, and they put them in boxes. They had they gave them no human contact. They fed them through holes, you know, in gloves and things like that. And all those babies died, and they died because they had heart failure because of excess cortisol in their system. Fear of death, because our creator gave us that need to keep people around, because human beings, out of all the animals on the planet, we remain reliant upon somebody else, a parent or guardian or something like that, to give us our physical and emotional needs longer than any other animal on the planet. I think second is um, an elephant, and it's like two or three years or something like that. Human babies have to have somebody around. There's lots of reasons for that. So we're given that need to keep people around us. And when people are not around us, fear of death comes through. And so it, that never goes away. You know, it's fear of rejection. It is fear of not being loved. It's fear, And that goes into fear of not being enough. And if we have that, and that stuff's going through our system all the time, it's going to cause us to be in fight or flight all the time. It's going to cause us to operate it less than we can. And it's going to also cause us to seek ways of alleviating that fear. Alcohol, drugs, destructive things, you know. And we're always seeking to do that. But like you said, David, there are ways, and that's part of my processes, if you will, to help help eliminate that. Most of us don't even know that it's there. You know, I can remember times in my life that I would wake up and I didn't know why I felt bad. I'd wake up in the morning and go, "What do I feel so anxious about? Why is that there?" There was something deep inside that I didn't know what it was there. I'd even look at my life and I go, "Joseph, you know, you're healthy." And I knew all the words and I knew all the obvious things. You're healthy, you know. You, you, you know, you live in the greatest country in the world. You got this, all that stuff, and I could say all those things. But there was still something underneath that was still saying, "You're not good enough." You know, as I said earlier, you know, having black skin. You know, times that by 10, 15, 100 or whatever because of history. And by the way, there's a lot of people that don't believe in that. A lot of people say that, well, listen, that happened 400 years ago. No, it didn't. It's still happening to this day at a yeah, level yeah. that it's is unconscious. thing called epigenetics. Ooh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. Real quickly, a story. It's a metaphor, but it describes what has gone on. And there is a 10-year-old girl, a mother, her mother, and then a grandmother and a great-grandmother. And they're all in one house, and there's so there's four generations of daughters, and they're all in the house. It's Thanksgiving. The mother is teaching the ten year old how to cook Thanksgiving dinner. She takes her in into the kitchen, and she says, "Okay, first thing we're going to do is we're going to we're going to cook the ham." And so she unwraps the ham. It's one of those rolled up hams, and she takes it out, and she cuts the ends of the ham off, and she puts it in the pan. The daughter goes, "Mom, why do we why do we cut the the ends off the ham?" And she goes, "Oh, I don't know." Uh, let's ask. That's what my mom did. Let's ask her. They go to the mom, and she goes, I don't know. Let's ask, you know, great grandma. They go to the great grandma who was raised in the 20s, and she goes, Well, we didn't have any money, so the pan that we had was too small for the ham, so we had to cut the ends off to make it fit. Right. Now it's a silly story, but that's we all tie our shoes the same way as we were taught down through the ages. We all brush our teeth. We do all of those things because we were conditioned and we were taught to be that way through the ages, and that is how we feel about ourselves as well. You know, who you, you got to say who taught you to think that you were less? Who taught you to feel inferior or, or feel like you're not enough? I don't know. It's not that I don't care, but I don't have to know. I don't have to know how you got your fear of dogs or heights or whatever for me to help you get over it.
2: And the beautiful thing is that we can, just as we were taught that we're a fractured, not whole self, we can be taught and learn we are whole as we are. We're perfect exactly Quickly. as we are. And, Quickly. Then, and then, you know, two generations from now, people are just happy and, and they're like, well, why do you think that you're a whole, complete, perfect human being? Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, may, that, may we be so lucky. Yeah, well. Um, and on that point, you know, we're, we're about out of time, but I wanted to ask because if there was ever a time that humans were waking up feeling a little off, I think it's 2020. No doubt. And, and that there is a lot of amygdala activation. There's a lot of fight or flight and freeze happening in the human race right now. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice of good ways to uh, upshift our brain and get out of survival, get out of the fight, flight or freeze and into the higher brain functioning so that we can move from survival to thriving, even amidst the massive changes
0: and challenges that we're facing. Shane, that is a big question for the time that we have left. <laughs> so, Don't worry, we can go over. Okay. Well, here's what I'll say. Um, there, thirty again, seconds prof- or less. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a process-oriented person. In other words, like I said, progress comes from process, and process means doing something. It's not the knowledge. It's it's and it's not just taking action. It's activity, which is repeated action. And so, what I'll say is, I'll, I'll offer three things. Number one is meditation. Now, hold up. When I say meditate, I'm not talking about lotus position and, you know, crystals and, and unicorns and rainbows. That stuff is very valuable, and I encourage that. When I say meditate, I mean— I love that
2: you are just saying uh, <laughs> unicorns are very valuable. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. they are. We're going to take but- that
0: clip, yeah. Yeah, but when you say when you say those that word meditation in a business environment, an entrepreneur environment, they go, All right, here we go. You know, I love self-loving crap. Yeah, exactly. But here's what I mean: take the word apart. Meditation means to mediate what's going on inside your head. To mediate. And what that means is to observe. A mediator is steps in and goes, Okay, well, this is happening, this is happening, and observes first. Okay. And so when I say meditate, I mean take just 10 minutes. Here's a process that you can do. Take 10 minutes and sit down and shut the hell up. No phone, no conversation with anybody. Just be quiet for a moment because here's what will happen within two to three minutes. You're gonna start to be aware of the talker inside your own head. It's a conversation and it's, it's, it's a conversation either by you or by somebody else or a combination of Usually it's the latter. A great deal of people, is just one person, it's their own voice talking. But oftentimes it's a well-meaning father or something a girlfriend or boyfriend said about you or to you or whatever. In the background, that voice, recognize what that voice is. Second thing is to you'll recognize whether that voice is what I call love-lifting or denigrating. And I mean, not only in the words that he or she says, but the tone of that voice that that person is saying. And if the third step in that in that place is is to if you recognize that it's if it's not love lifting if it's not encouraging if it's not inspiring change it. And you can change it to anything you want. You can just say, I'm amazing. You can say, I freaking rock. You know, you can say, you know, I have a mantra that I've said probably 25 years at last, at last, the past has passed. I've broken free and won. And now it's time to love myself and really have some fun. A bold new world is on the rise for all of us to have. And I'm the one, yes, I'm the one, a beacon that lights a path. I've said that so many times that that is my underlying thought. Now, number one is to meditate, recognize what's going on, change the voice. And I know I'm giving this really, really fast, but there's a, a more in depth process. Second thing, is to interrupt your pattern. And what that means is, as you know about this, Shane, Shane, NLP, is that when any pain, emotional uncertainty, any pain, anything that is not making you feel good is a signal for you to snap the hell out of it. Stand up, shake yourself out. Because as soon as you do, you create a scotoma. You create a blank spot. You know, we've all had the experience where you're you're going, okay, I gotta go in the kitchen and get an ink pen. You stand up and go in the ink, in the kitchen and there you're standing you don't know what the hell you came in there for. You interrupted your pattern. But the great part about it is in that moment, you've created a scotoma, a blank spot, and it's a vacuum. And it's begging for something to put in. And in that moment, just smile. When you smile, it releases the dopamines and endorphins. And that teaches your nervous system to do it again. So your nervous system goes anytime pain comes around. This is a practice, if you will. Then you snap yourself out of it. Last thing, last piece of that is to teach. And what that means is this, is... It's no secret that we all learn from our mentors. Be a mentor. People say, "I don't have a purpose." Well, yes, you do. Your purpose on this planet, and you don't have nobody has just one. But if you want to just come down to how do I how do I learn what my purpose is, teach something to somebody else. Give something to somebody else. You can, you know, on this podcast or this, that we're doing right now. If you've learned something, go teach it to somebody. Go tell somebody, hey, here's what I learned today. Here's this, that kind of thing. Get in that habit of doing that because your nervous system wants to do that. We all will do more for other people than we'll do for ourselves. And when we do that, I'm all about dopamine release. Your brain releases dopamine, which is the most powerful drug, if you will, that conditions you, that, that causes teaches your nervous system to do more of it. But the greatest part about it is when we're releasing that guess what we're not doing we're not being fearful we're not being negative we're not being skeptical we're not being pessimistic. So those three things meditate, interrupt your pattern and then teach whatever. Those things will start you along the path if you will of not only your own self-development but your oh don't get me started dudes. Literally we impact you know I have this thing that I call being a megapreneur. And a megapreneur is somebody is an entrepreneur that is in that upper two to three percent of success in whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's real estate, whether it is network marketing, whether it is uh, you know internet marketing, whatever it is, whether it is you know being healthy. You know, I, I say wealthy means to be healthy, happy, and financially abundant. And so you want to be a megapreneur. And I use myself as not a shining example of the way things should be, but I do use myself as an example of what's possible because I was homeless at one point in my life
2: so good,
1: Joseph. Thank you.
2: Thanks for being on the show. Really great to jam with you and look forward to more.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you to our
1: producer, counter Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at dot com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you.